We have been studying one of those mountaintop chapters in the Bible, uh, a place of beauty and power and towering perspective and unsurpassed comfort in Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 is really what it's all about. It's what God is doing in his great work of salvation. That is, we've been talking about that since the beginning of Romans, what God is doing, but this is where it all leads up to. This is like the climax. We've been studying all of these great doctrines, uh, human sin, justification, sanctification, regeneration. And if I've seemed a bit repetitive, I apologize for that, sort of, but these are the foundational truths of the Christian faith, and they deserve our full attention. But it all leads up to here, Romans chapter 8. This chapter is, in a sense, a place to rest and to find refreshment that will never fail to satisfy the individual who is in Christ. Our text for today, verses 12 through 17, introduces a a new theological topic, another dimension of the blessing Jesus brought to us by dying on the cross for us. Now let's review some of the concepts we've talked about so far. Chapters 6 through 8, those three chapters are all about, what big word did we use? That's right, sanctification, that's right. Sanctify. Sanctify just means to set apart. We said it's the exact same word as the word holy. If you've ever heard a priest speaking Latin, you probably heard in some sacramental blessing the word spiritus sanctus. Sanctus, sanctify, that's the same word. The Holy Spirit, that's all that means. Sanctus is holy. So sanctification is our being set apart, our set apart standing with God, and how that being set apart by God is to work itself out in our conduct and in our life. So Romans 6-8 through is all about living a holy life, a life that's set apart from the world for God. But before we came to sanctification, we needed to discuss another big word, justification. And justification is a legal matter. It's about how wicked people who have been condemned because of their wickedness under the wrath of God and face the judgment of God, how those people are in fact made right with God, given a right standing with God, made righteous. And chapters 3 through 5 of Romans explains justification in great detail. And the key idea there is that we needed righteousness to have God's approval, but we didn't have any. When we looked in our righteousness account book, it had zeros everywhere. And we got all flustered and upset about that because it meant we were doomed. In fact, those chapters actually describe us, the natural man, as ungodly, as sinners, and as enemies of God. So that is hopeless and doomed, and rightly so, justly condemned. But we learn that God, out of his great love, has a plan, a way to make us righteous. And that is by his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would take upon himself our sin and pay off our penalty and our debt, just pay it completely, and then freely credit us with his righteousness. And so real is this that at the cross, when God looked upon Christ, he saw your life there and punished it. And when he looks at you today, if you know Jesus, he sees the life that Jesus lived in a very real sense in you. His righteousness belongs to you. It's a gift. 
a gift of grace. So we are made right with God solely and only through His grace. And we receive that righteousness, Paul said over and over again, if you remember, by faith alone. Another word we've used recently is regeneration or the new birth. And that's where the Spirit of God awakens our hearts and, to use Bible language, makes us alive. Opens up wonderful spiritual capacities. You could not believe without the new birth. You could not obey without the new birth. You could not enjoy God without the new birth. And in Romans, the new birth is described in terms of new life. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, uses the expression newness of life. Verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the new birth. So, justification, we're pronounced righteous by God's decree. In regeneration, we actually are given a new disposition. Our hearts are made alive to God. We have a new heart. As it was promised in the Old Testament about the new covenant that would someday come, where God would write his law on the hearts of his people. So the new concept has a simple and familiar word to describe it, and that's the word adoption. Adoption. Everyone knows what adoption means. You're made a part of a a new family. In fact, you're made a full part of a new family. You know, my wife was a foster child. She wasn't adopted. She was in a family, and they've always treated her like a family. But legally, her standing with them is not the same as being an adopted child. You actually have new parents And it's a legal position that you have, more than just care. Let's look at our text, um, Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Sons of God. I think we've become way too casual in our appreciation of what those words mean. And I think maybe it's because of our culture. We live in this neo-pagan culture now, and everybody sort of considers, considers this a man-exalting sort of given thing. Oh yeah, sure, we're all God's children, you know. We all have divinity in us. That's not what Paul is talking about. It's not talking about our own inner divinity. Because when Paul looked at human beings, by the revelation of God, the conclusion was ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. He didn't say, oh, look at the inner divinity of my being. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? In ourselves, we are miserable, failed creatures. We are ungodly and sinful and enemies, Romans 5 says. In fact, here in our text, the sons of God are only a certain type of person. What does it say? All who are led by the Spirit of God, and then there's a very strong pronoun, most translations include it, these are sons of God. Does that mean there are people who are not sons of God? Oh, most certainly. In fact, Jesus said to his uh, rabbinical opponents, he said, You know, you guys are of your father, the devil. Romans 8 is offering us a tremendous contrast. We looked at that last week. There are two kinds of people under consideration in this chapter. Those who have the Spirit of Christ and those who don't. 
Remember verse 5. Let's go back to verse 5 of chapter 8. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There's two groups there. There's always two groups in the Bible. Always. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now those are very simple words. They shouldn't be controversial. You are either born once or you're born twice. That's really what it's saying. You are either justified or you're not justified. You're either possessing the Spirit of God, He either dwells in you or He does not dwell in you. And verse 13 tells us you are either living according to the flesh or by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And you can see from verse 13 how different these two ways of being are just by looking at the ends it is a matter of life and death. If you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now you can't get a bigger contrast than that. Dead and alive. That's pretty drastic. What does he mean by living according to the flesh that results in death? He's simply referring to the way an unregenerated person, and a person that has been born once, deals with life. It's that simple. He doesn't know God. He doesn't love God. He can't trust God. So he has to make up his own rules. He makes up his own religion. He invents God. He talks about God as though God is malleable and changeable according to the whims of the person. Ever heard somebody say, my God is like this? As though God's nature is determined by what our opinion is. Which is completely bizarre if you think about it for more than a few seconds. This person has nothing to rest in, so he, he desperately finds ways to cope with life. Now that might come in all kinds of packages, depending on a person's background and personality, but all of it is from the flesh. The flesh being all that you are without Christ and the new life that's in him. A person in the flesh might be really sophisticated and philosophical, and he might be cravenly superstitious and weak-minded and brutish but equally of the flesh. He might be a sensualist who indulges every whim and desire. He might be an ascetic who denies himself every bodily passion. He might be an atheist. He might be a religious zealot. But what he is not doing is putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit because he does not have the Spirit. He has no capacity for spiritual life as God defines it or victory, because he's not alive to God. He's dead to God and needs that touch of divine grace to bring him to life. What does Paul mean to live according to the flesh? He actually describes the deeds of the flesh. Just a little bit over for a moment, if you keep your finger here and go to Galatians chapter 5, you get some substantive definition to what we're talking about. This section in Galatians reads a lot like Romans chapter 7 and 8. 
And Paul is addressing that conflict between the flesh and the spirit, a conflict everybody faces. Verse 16, Galatians chapter 5, he says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Sounds just like Romans 7, right? Verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And that also sounds like Romans 7 and 8. But beginning in verse 19, he offers us a list of deeds of the flesh. It's a partial list, of course, because the list would be really long if you started going down the whole thing. But it covers quite a bit of ground. You can break the list down into four basic categories. And the first one in verse 19 has to do with sensuality or sexual type sins. The deeds of the flesh are evident, they're obvious, he says. Immorality, that's a Greek word, porneia, guess where we get our word porn from, has to do with out-of-bounds sexuality. Sexuality that is a violation of God's law regarding sexuality. Porneia, impurity, sensuality. All three of those words are tied into sexual immorality. Impurity is the idea of the opposite of clean. It's impurity. It seems to speak more of a lascivious heart, perhaps. Perhaps a delight in sin that encourages others also. Sensuality is that flaunting, sensual nature, that desire to be open in sensual sort of ways. And that's what characterizes, of course, so much of popular culture, from Britney Spears to Julia Roberts to Destiny's Child or whatever. Some would translate this word wantonness. It's just a flagrant sexuality that is an immodest and impure in its presentation. The second major category is religious. Verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is any worship or vain imagining that does not give God his due, but renders what God deserves to something else. Now, in the ancient world, of course, they worshipped rocks and trees and stones and statues, and some people still do that, but most people worship themselves today. We've really advanced. But that's idolatry. Sorcery is a really interesting Greek word here, pharmakia. Every time you go to a drugstore, you're going to a pharmacy, and that's where it comes from. It's drugs, is what it is. And it refers to people, you know how people in the 60s, anybody remember the 60s? <laughs> people use drugs to achieve enlightenment. I knew some people that used to watch the colors come out of the stereo <laughs> when they were dropping certain things into their body. Self-knowledge, supposedly. The ancient pagans did exactly the same thing, using alcohol and drugs to achieve some kind of state, an altered state, altered state of consciousness. That's the idea. American Indians still use peyote for the exact same purpose. It's to, it's to put yourself in a different state chemically. Chemically induced religious experiences. That's of the flesh. Obviously. Isn't that evident? Well, you can like see blue people when you take this stuff. It's quite cool. You know, I knew a guy that um, was deeply into Eastern meditation and LSD at different times in his life. And he said it was exactly the same experience. One is chemically induced and one is induced through meditation. But you're just putting your body in an altered state to experience these contentless religious experience. So the flesh, totally of the flesh. 
Third category involves sins of personal relations. What a list. They all have to do with ungodly attitudes and conflict, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Now these are things which shame humanity, but are so common in everyday life. All of these things are violations of love and are part of a fallen, unredeemed humanity. And just reading the list makes you want to just cringe. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings. Yeah, get me away from that. You know. But how many people practice these things all the time? Even live for them and in them. Habitually haranguing and cutting down and gossiping and destroying and all of that. But the sheer pleasure of breaking someone with words, you know? The last category begins with drunkenness, but taken together suggests an, uh, an unseemly, out-of-control, sort of decadent lifestyle. Verse 21, drunkenness, carousing, and then he just says, and things like that. Drunkenness, carousing, you know, partying, going wild in a way that's not wholesome or good. Deeds of the flesh. Now, can a Christian fall into some of these sins? Well, of course. But if this is what the heart desires and lives for, and if this is what we are all about, if this is what characterizes us, well, he says in verse 21, I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you in the past, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is that you're going to get punished for that. He's saying that is just characteristic of an unregenerate person, a person that does not have the grace of God. So you're doomed. That's the death that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. You can go ahead and head back that way. If you live according to the flesh, you must die. It's exactly the same idea. It's a very simple concept, but obviously the ramifications are profound. And again, it boils down to whether or not you are newly born or not newly born by the Spirit of God. If you are born by the Spirit, you simply view those deeds of the flesh differently than if you're not born by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The mark of the Spirit in this battle against such wicked inclinations is, is resistance. I mean, the, the sign is that you see those things as deeds of the flesh to be opposed and battled with spiritually for the glory of God. And if you don't think that way, you're not there. I think the phrase by the Spirit means doing so in a specifically Christian way. Because, you know, you can be a, an ascetic monk somewhere sitting on a mountaintop and growing your beard and have people come down to see you and, and say, I'm resisting the flesh, you know. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about resisting the flesh by the Spirit. God's way. For the glory and honor of God by faith in the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 14 quite literally defines being a Christian as one who is being led by the Spirit of God. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, he says. And we make a terrible mistake when we think that being led by the Spirit of God is the mark of some super saint out there. You know, Billy Graham, he must be led by the Spirit of God, but you know, I'm not led by the Spirit of God. Some really committed person, the missionary or the martyr or the, the doers of great deeds. No, genuine Christians are led by the Spirit of God. They are putting to death 
to death the deeds of the body. Now some obviously follow that lead better than others. More consistently than others, perhaps. But this is what real Christians do. And every Christian is a child of God. Ever so much more than mere servants of God. These are sons of God, he says. Now there's a lot one could say about this idea of sonship, being a child of God, being adopted into God's family. But in this context, Paul chooses to focus on the absence of fear. I think that's really interesting. Verse 15, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So being a child of God is the opposite of what? A spirit of slavery leading to fear. That's a really interesting phrase. He's saying the non-Christian or the Christian's pre-Christian self is characterized by slavery leading to fear. The slave, of course, in a household is not a son and doesn't have the standing of a son. His relationship, going back into the spiritual context of what we're talking about, human life, the relationship to God or the gods or the powers that be or the big man upstairs or whatever you're going to call him, it's based on fear and service not sonship and love. The life lived according to the flesh is a life of fear because the flesh has such limited vision and God or the gods are really not knowable. The gods are arbitrary and anything can happen when they do their thing. And I can never know what they want or how they regard me so I try to appease them. And since I can't count on them, I must manipulate the world around me and the people around me the best I can to make sure I'm happy, and if not happy, at least safe in some way. And if that means sin, I'll do it. Because what else do I have? But the Christian completely different from that is a child of God. A Christian has no ultimate cause for fear. None. How does Romans chapter 8 begin? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Slaves fear condemnation. Sons don't fear condemnation. Our Father has no intention no desire to fill us with dread, only the assurance of his love. Believers don't have a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption, Paul says. By God's grace and the leading of the Holy Spirit, our hearts well up in love in the new birth and cry out to him, Abba, say, what is that, a band from Sweden? No, that's an old, old word from the days of the, the Hebrews. And it's just like the word daddy or dada. Ab is the word father in Hebrew. Abba. That's the very first word a child would use to say dad in the ancient world. Abba is the simplest form of address to a father. Jesus used that word in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was 
pleading with God to find a way other than the cross to save humanity. Abba, Abba. And he taught his disciples to address God as a father, which was not typical among the Jews of the first century. They didn't. They thought of God as a father, sort of like in a George Washington way. He's the father of our nation. He's our father, but not in an intimate, personal sort of way. In fact, Jesus was so adamant about the fatherhood of God that he got in a lot of trouble for that. They thought he was very disrespectful. But he was bringing something that was fresh and wonderful that only he could bring. Because what he achieved in the cross is what allows us to call God Abba, Father. The, re the re reality is that his death and resurrection seals the validity of addressing God in those kind of personal terms. Because his death for us justifies us and that paves the way for a complete acceptance by God. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John Murray, the theologian, wrote this. He said, Justification means our acceptance with God as righteous and the bestowal of the title to everlasting life. Regeneration is the renewal of our hearts after the image of God. But these blessings in themselves, however precious they are, do not indicate what is conferred by the act of adoption. By adoption, the redeemed become sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. They are introduced into and given the privileges of God's family. So that's a really important idea, adoption. That isn't quite conveyed in the other terms. So adoption as a point of theology occupies a very unique and a very special place amidst all the blessings of salvation. And Paul intends that you should cling to that concept and rejoice in it, for it is God's cure for fear. And it is an important part of that rest for your souls that Jesus promised to all who would come to him. Come to me, he said, all that are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest for your souls. That's what he's talking about. There are some really wonderful words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12. I would encourage you to kind of head back that way in the Gospels. Luke 12 is Luke's account of Jesus' marvelous teaching on faith and how men who know God as a father should not worry. And you remember the very famous phraseology here, God feeds the birds of the air, God clothes the lilies of the field. And that means we have freedom, is what Jesus is saying. Because people are so worried about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear. Of course, we worry about how we're going to pay for the RV and, and the extra car, you know, and all. That's what we worry about. But in his day, people worried about food and they worried about clothes, you know, basics. And he says, you know, God can take care of all of those things you need because he's your father. So take all that worry energy and put it somewhere else. All that emotional energy we put into fear and anxiety about how we're going to pay for this or how we're going to do that, all that energy could be applied to consideration of our relationship to God's kingdom. Luke 12:31, he says, But seek first, first for his kingdom, and these things, food and clothes and all that stuff, will be added to you, right? Then he says these wonderful words, Do not be afraid little flock 
For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Chosen gladly. That verb can be translated pleasure. It is God's pleasure to give you the kingdom. God is not constrained to give you the kingdom. All right, have a kingdom. He's not dragging his feet about it. He isn't doing what he doesn't really want to do. He's delighted to give you the kingdom. John Piper says, quote, not his duty, not his necessity, not his obligation, but his pleasure to give you the kingdom. That is the kind of God he is. That is the measure of the greatness of his heart. He's a father who just loves to give to his children. And it is a gift. He's not selling you the kingdom and he's not trading you the kingdom. He's giving you the kingdom. And he gives bountifully, openly, gladly, because he regards us as children. And he's giving the greatest gift that can be given, his kingdom. We're so backwards sometimes the way we think about things. You know, receiving the kingdom of God, Jesus says in many places, might actually entail losing everything in this life, being shot to death in a church somewhere, being persecuted, losing your job, all those kinds of things. But that's not the bad part because God knows the whole picture. We look and we get caught up in, yeah, but whatever this. But he sees, he sees eternity. And he sees, you know, David says, in his right hand are pleasures forever. He sees that waiting for us at the end. So what if we do get shot down? All of that is waiting for us. So he doesn't see that as a huge problem. God knows how temporary this life is and how wonderful eternity is. Oh, it's pie in the sky. Well, if it's really there, that's okay. It's this wonderful, wonderful thing he knows about. That's why faith is essential. Because you need to believe in him. Just as he's revealed himself here. A father who delights in giving the very best gifts to his children. And you have to believe that. Trusting in this will deliver you from slavish obedience. And take you to a child's delightful obedience to a worthy parent. Trusting in this delivers us from fear. That's what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying. Next week I want to return to this theme of adoption, but for right now let me just close with some thoughts. Um, I've been reading John Piper lately and his book, The Pleasures of God, is so good. I just want to read you a couple paragraphs from this. So just relax and listen talking about this Luke 12 passage, he says, the unrestrained gladness of God in giving to his children is proved by the greatness of his gift. He does not promise to give us wealth in this world, contrary to some TV preachers. I, I put that in. In fact, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He does not promise popularity or fame or admiration among men. In fact, he says, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. 
He does not even promise security in this life. In fact, he says, you will be delivered up by parents and brothers and kinsmen and friends, and some of you they will put to death and will be hated by all for my name's sake. All he promises to give us is the kingdom of God. The magnitude of this gift is felt when we realize that the unspeakable privileges of it are secondary to the main reward. In the kingdom we will inherit the earth and the world, but this is secondary. In the kingdom we will judge angels, but this too is secondary. In the kingdom we will reign on earth with Christ and possess power over the nations. We will eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and little children shall play over the hole of an asp and put his hand on the adder's den. We will beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Justice shall roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Our bodies will be made new and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be crying or pain or guilt or fear anymore and we will sit on the very throne of the King of Kings. But all of these are secondary privileges in the kingdom. The main reward of the kingdom, the reward above all others and in all others, is that in the kingdom we will behold the glory of God and enjoy that glory with the very pleasure of God. Now I'm going to interject something. If you're born again, that excites you tremendously. If you're not, you're going, huh? One of the great frustrations of this life is that even when we are granted a glimpse of the glory of God, our capacities for pleasure are so small that we groan at the incongruity between the revelation of heaven and the response of our heart. Therefore, the great hope of all the holiest people is not only that they may see the glory of God, but that they might somehow be given a new strength to savor it with infinite satisfaction. Not the partial delights of this world, but if possible with the very infinite delight of God himself. That's what it means that the Father wants you gladly to have the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, our Father, for being a Father to very undeserving people. What great love It's so beyond our comprehension. Help us to live as children without fear, without concern for all the things of this life, without without a lack of trust in your goodness and your mercy and your fatherly compassion. Just give us grace to know what it all means. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.